Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Everything I learned from movies Helps to make life a little bit groovy With a one-life plot holes of gratuitous movies It's time to get busy with your friend Steven Bruce Bence has appeared in over 100 feature films and television programs, including the movie series of Mad Max, Star Wars, Lore of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Matrix, and more. Uh, he often portrays tall, ominous, and sometimes sinister characters, but with a flair that's kept him in the business for over five decades. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Spence was kind enough to join us on Everything I Learned from Movies. And I apologize in advance for the Skype background noise. Uh, sorry, it happens. Excellent. And, okay, it looks like sound's coming across. Uh, is my video coming across? No, but that's, we don't have to sweat on that. If, if, it's not, if it's not coming across, it's not a problem. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's all fine. As long as we're talking, then we're communicating. Okay, perfect. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of delay or anything, so that's good. Excellent. Well, again, uh, I guess first and foremost, thank you for joining me. Uh, fortunately, my wife uh, isn't able to make it this time, but uh, we're really excited about this. <laughs> okay, that's, that's unfortunate, but then we're fine. That's, we can go from there. Yeah. Right, excellent. Give him, my, give him my regards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how's the weather down in Sydney right now? Uh, today's going to be 24 degrees. Oh. We're officially in, we're officially in wintertime, but um, the weather is quite bizarre. It's unusually warm. Yeah, say, that's that's about what we've got here. And, uh, yeah, it's like late spring here so <laughs> in San Francisco. Excellent. Oh, right, of course, you're in Frisco. Yeah, yeah. Sydney has a uh, climate that's sort of halfway between Los Angeles and, and Frisco. Oh, very nice. That sounds perfect to me. <laughs> it, it, is, it is. It's really nice, yeah. Except it's unusually warm for obvious reasons, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> climate change, yeah. Oh, is it really, really affecting down there? It is, yeah. We had a very unusual... Are we officially in winter now, Jim? We're in autumn. Yeah, we're in, we're well into autumm anyway. But um, uh, the, the where the last month was at least about one and a half degrees above normal. Oh wow! Uh, the whole, and it looks like the whole the whole this whole year will be about at least one degree above normal, which is quite significant. Yeah, absolutely. Jeez, really got to get the planet back on track somehow. <laughs> this, is true. this is true. Yeah. Okay. Let's oh, yeah. let's start. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you for joining us on uh, Everything I Learned from Movies, uh, Mr. Bruce Spence. Um, I guess, first off, if you wouldn't mind just letting us know uh, where you grew up, what your family life was kind of like. Okay, um, I was born in 1945 uh, in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, my family were winemakers, actually. Um, uh, and I grew up in a, in a sort of 
in an area that was orcharding and um, and vineyards, a lot of the folk in this uh, this valley uh, were descendants from uh, Dalmatians. So that's the Dalmatian coast, which of which is now Croatia. And okay. at the time that my my grandfather came from Dalmatia, uh, it was part of the Venezia, which means it was part of Italy. So uh, it had a tradition, a very short tradition, I might add, because they were settlers there um, from about the 1860s on. But they came in about the turn of the, about the 19, early, early 1900s and 18, 1890s. But um, so my family were winemakers, um, and uh, I was supposed to be taking on uh, with my brothers um, the, the family business of winemaking. I went to university and studied a diploma in horticulture. Uh, came home and um, got itchy feet. Uh, <laughs> I started on a. On, I was actually on my way around the world, and um, I ended up in Melbourne, Australia, with friends there. And I really left winemaking. I had a diploma in horticulture, but I, I went from job to job, and then eventually, because my mother was an artist, and um, I hadn't studied art at school, but I began um, doing night classes in art and it was apparent to the teachers that I had some ability so they suggested I go, um, do, sorry, do you want me to break this or uh, should I just keep on talking? No, no, yeah, keep, keep go, go right ahead. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So um, anyway, uh, my teachers sort of uh, suggested that I go full time and um, which in a way it meant that I had to in a, in a strange fashion, kind of drop out because I had a full-time job at the time and uh, I was by that time uh, estranged from my family in New Zealand um, for, various, for, for that reason that I'd chosen not to take on the family business. And um, so I, I worked nights <coughs> and was studying, studying uh, fine art at uh, one of the, the art schools in Melbourne and then I socially I met a, a group of fellow sort of university students from other universities in in Melbourne that had a, a strange mission which was basically to 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 develop and sort of establish a, um, uh, a, a, a an Austra Australian drama that was what really what they were at that time there was very little Australian drama on television there was almost there was no pretty well no uh, Australian movies and even on our stages on our theatre stages there was very little Australian theatre um, we most of our um, sort of cultural influences were coming from Britain. We were still sort of very firmly members of the British Empire, and um, mm -hmm. there was a, what we called at the time a cultural cringe, where it was we were almost embarrassed to see ourselves on stage. So we were, and this was. Now I'm jumping ahead to about this. What I'm describing now that would have been the sort of late six, 1960s. Okay. So Perfect. around about that time, there was a fair bit of political turmoil in the world too. The Vietnam War was going. Yeah. There had been the Paris riots, uh, etc. So there's a quite a large left-wing sort of surge amongst um, the anti-war movement, etc. And a number of those people were uh, involved in this group at the time. Anyway, there are, within this group, there were play, a number of people that were aspiring playwrights, aspiring actors. Uh, there were a couple of folk that were very interested in making film, etc. And when I, when I joined this group, I, I hadn't thought about being an actor. I hadn't thought about being uh, 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 anyway um, attached to drama in any way. But 
um, <clears throat> they started doing plays, etc., and writing them. And I found myself uh, a little niche there where I was um, making the posters and doing promotions, helping build sets and various other things using my art experience, etc. And then one, because we were quite a small group, one day one of them said, look, we need someone to play this role in, a, in, a, in, a, in one particular play. There was only about four or five words. You'll, you know, it's not much there, but if you could just fill in for us, which I did. And for some reason, they thought my performance was much better than my artwork. And um, <laughs> although they did like my artwork, but um, yeah, yeah. however, um, uh, my part started to get bigger. And I was still at art school, so it was essentially uh, time. I'm also going to sort of want to mention that I, I had a, an enormous education at this time about drama, about movies, etc., because. A lot of the people associated with this group were enthusiasts with the movie world, etc. With uh, you know, we we would spend a lot of our time going and watching movies um, associated with the Melbourne University. For instance, there was a Melbourne University Film Society in which we got a lot of the old contemporary films that we would watch, you know, late into the night and through the night, you know, all, all the classics like Citizen Kane, but uh, and and various other all the classic westerns all the genres we watched apart as well as the very contemporary films that were coming out at the time but we went back we, we watched a lot of Truffaut a lot of Godard, a lot of the French new, new 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 cinema stuff so a lot of Godard a lot of Truffaut um, Renoir um, oh, if you, you name it we were, we were we were watching it and um, that's sort of almost that um, French New Wave kind of influenced, I think, a lot of Australian filmmakers, uh, yeah. essentially because they had a way of, um, a lot of their rules were kind of low budget too, and and they had sort of taken the American kind of, oh, how can you describe it, the American style of, that American approach to storytelling, etc., those genres, etc., and they, I think a lot of those New Wave French cinema folk, had, uh, you probably might be familiar with them too, but found, found ways of using those American genres and and uh, telling their own stories using using uh, those sort of um, characteristics, etc. So um, some of us started making little short films. Um, in those days, of course, it wasn't digital, and um, because we didn't have much money, there's a I, don't, I think Americans might be familiar with it, but. There's a thing we call short ends. Um, when 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 some of the say a uh, television company or people making advertisements or even film folk would 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 not often they wouldn't finish a roll of film. They would finish it and there'd be a bit left over, and that would not be exposed. And some of us would get these short ends and stick them all together. And <laughs> so it was a very cheap way of putting together a film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think, yeah. And, um, and so that's where a lot of experimentation occurred. And I must confess, I, my career sort of, as I said, it was all very serendipitous. Um, meeting these people when I was at art school, being offered the role in a play which grew and grew, being offered little film parts that you wouldn't see now that because they were very small experimental things. And then on a, ma a gentleman called David Williamson, who's one of our major, major playwrights in Australia who we sort of 
started working with. Uh, he was a, um, a lecturer of, in thermodynamics at the time, but okay. and he wrote um, a script called Stork, The Coming of Stork it was, and um, uh, I played the lead of Stork in that play, and the uh, f film director, Tim Burstall, saw it and decided, thought, wow, there's a film here, and that was probably, Stork was the film, and it was probably the film that it was one of the major films, anyway, that had a, it had a major influence on kind of launching the new wave of, um, of Australian cinema. Oh, yes. um, one of the reasons was, um, up until that time, people were making films, and uh, some Australian films, and many of them were rather pretentious, but audiences weren't going to them, and also cinema chains weren't prepared to promote them. But Stork was... Uh, exhibited um, independently first through a number of cinemas, and because of its popularity, it did. It, it ended up with uh, an exhibition through some of the major cinemas at the time, and it did quite well. And and that kind of breached the motor, I suppose as you call it. You know, like it, it, it made way for other 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 films to be uh, exhibited in the in in cinemas in Australia, and it kind of people started going to see Australian movies. Now, I'm jumping ahead here. I might be able to fill in, but I, I, I went on to do television and newsfront, directed by Phil Noyce, who does a lot of work in America at present yeah. and the US. Um, that was one of probably his first major uh, feature film that I worked on here at Newsfront. Um, then I did a number of small things, but at that, at that time I was still doing a lot of theatre. Um, and theatre's always been my first love in a way. Um, yeah. I love film. I love working in it, but it's generally be my first love and then in about 1980 I got a phone call from my agent and said look there's there's a film going uh, they've been auditioning folk and they would like you to go over and, and, and try for a role um, it's um, uh, been directed by George Miller who, uh, who did the, that first um, uh, Mad Max film if you remember and I said well I did but I didn't go and see it because I thought it was a bit too um a bit too, um, uh, a bit too violent, or <laughs> a bit too heavy for me. Yeah. And and um, so I, I went over, and it was pretty well, uh, sort of a, a cold um, audition. Um, I got the script, went away for about half an hour, and I came back, and um, I sort of had lived a lot of it, and, um, and George and I kind of played around with it a bit, and I thought nothing of it, um, and went away, and. Um, I didn't know whether I had the role or what, you know, for quite a while. And then I got a phone call from my agent saying, look, uh, George would like you to come and have a look. At, he's going to show a couple of movies to Mel Gibson, and he would like you to come and have a look at them too, if you don't mind. Uh, and I said to my agent, does, does, this mean if I've got, does this mean I've got the role? <laughs> and she said, well, I'm not sure. George just wants you to come and have a look at the movies. So I, I went... Uh, the two movies he, we, he showed us, which I think were really quite, um, you can kind of see the link, was one was Shane, uh, the great Western Shane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and the other was um, Kurosawa's Yojimbo, Ooh. which was um, eventually made in, uh, one of the, the Americans saw, Sergio Leone saw it and, and translated in, in, into um, A Fistful of Dollars. Um, yeah. And see if, I don't know, have you seen Yojimbo? 
Uh, no, but I've seen Fistful of Dollars dozens of times. <laughs> That's okay. Well, anytime you've got, I think it's even on um, YouTube. But um, oh, yeah. I really recommend Yojimbo. watching um, uh, uh, Yojimbo. You know, Kurosawa was the guy that did, um, you know, Seven Samurai. And, um, oh, yeah, Seven the, Samurai and Ran and, yeah, all, all great films. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And um, anyway, uh, Yojimbo, you, if you see that movie, you can sort of see a lot of, I wouldn't say there's a lot of Mad Max in it, but you can see kind of influences. Yeah. Um, anyway, we saw those two movies, and um, and then it looked sort of pretty close. But my re- this is my recollection. It's a long time ago, but this is actually... <laughs> recollection I have and other people might have other recollections but my recollection was that, that and then a sort of a couple of weeks later I got another call saying that um, they would like me to come down and be measured for um, the costume oh that's a good uh, sign <laughs> I think this means I got the role doesn't it yeah <laughs> anyway so it all transpired that I did you know I went down to the studios and this was when I they were building all the um all the cars for Mad Max too, so I got to uh, see those. It's funny, you know, because all of the plays that I'd done, mm, I'd say all the films that I'd done up until that time were all based on some sort of on the real world, you know. Yeah. Um, and and here I was moving into a uh, another world, another kind of yeah, another world that that was what well, certainly wasn't the real world. But it, it was uh, it was a, it was the world of George Miller. Yeah, that's what I have to describe it. And uh, it was the world of Max and the Road Warrior, and all these costumes, all these uh, all these all this machinery, all these cars, etc. Really, sort of put all my hairs were on end with this. I, I was just amazed, and I was quite um, quite astounded at it, and uh, almost sort of felt I didn't know. I, I was almost intimidated by it, I guess. Oh, yeah? Um, but I found it really exciting. It's one of those things was, i, I got to say, i got to sort of um, get off a bit off the track here, but I, I, I often say I actually saw the um, the Rolling Stones in 1966. I thought it was their first tour out to this area, but it was actually their second tour. And I always remember going to see, I was a young blade at the time, um, pretty innocent, in the world pretty mixed up and I remember going to see the Rolling Stones at that time when when it was the original lineup. Uh, Brian Jones was still with the group yeah. and uh, something changed I realised you know once again I thought wow these guys were sort of they certainly weren't the nice folk that the Beatles were um, at the <laughs> time they were they were the sort of grungy a much more a much more grungy uh, approach to, to the world and and it was something that I liked, and that's the kind of similar feeling that I got when I was when I walked into that studio and saw all that uh, machinery, etc., and all that all those costumes. And I had the interview with Norma Morrison, who um, bless her um, her soul, because she's uh, gone from these these waters now. Um, her imagination, and she, she said to me, "Do you think we should dress this character?" And I thought, "Oh God, you're asking me." And and, and, and that's when I realised that um, the film, even though it was George's world, very much George's um, creation, uh, he welcomed input from the actor, and and he and he really does like thinking actors. And I just 
I, I just enjoyed my whole time. That whole shoot was just brilliant. And as, as I said, working with Norma, which we together sort of worked out a kind of a costume because we were. Uh, George always does, and I think you'll find even with Fury Road, he does too. He, he encourages the actor to, to to develop, you know, the character in terms of their their present and their past, and you know how they got into this world and how they how they see that world, how they value it, and you know what 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 their personal values are. And you can see that because in all the, those Mad Max worlds that George has created, it's it's survival is the most important thing yeah. and really everybody is there to survive and so therefore you know whether or not you have any integrity or you know any moral base etc uh, you know is determined by your past I guess and by your character and those are the sorts of decisions and directions that you have to consider yeah, now anyway uh, I've leapt ahead into Mad Max now I don't think I need to go any further you can ask me some questions Oh, no, absolutely. I would say Mad Max is a great place to start. So what I'm hearing is that you came up with the idea for Gyro Captain, or just no, a wardrobe, no. or no? <laughs> no, 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 no. The Gyro Captain was all George's creation and, and, the, and the screenwriter, Terry Hayes. They wrote the, they wrote the script, but I'm just talking about the costume. Yeah, yeah, the, the wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but um, I, uh, Norma came up with it, and I made the contributions to it all as well. But no, it was Norma's creation, yeah. I made a few suggestions, that's all. But um, as I said, it was mainly we were mainly sort of being encouraged to just sort of think more about our characters. Okay? Nice. Did you have, like, a, the, like say, the uh, the background story for Gyro Captain? Because he didn't really have a whole lot of exposition, let's say, <laughs> during the oh, movie. No, but. no, no. No, but he was, uh, yeah, well, I guess, I mean, uh, when I read the script... That's when I, th I thought, well, you know, if he does that and he does that and he does that, you know, what what is he? And then I talked to Terry Hayes, the play, the writer, the script writer, screenwriter, and um, and we may have made a few tweaks because, uh, to be honest, um, there was there was a little bit of uh, improvisation that occurred on set too. It was sort of like a suck it and see sometimes, you know, why don't we try this a bit or, uh, and uh, under George's direction, you know, he might say, look. Can we push this a bit, or can we, you know, pull back on that, or whatever? And that might have determined a few little tweaks in the script. But essentially, it was George Miller's creation with Terry Hayes's um, words. But um, there was one scene where there was some. In the, I don't know if you remember in the um, where we returned to the gyrocopter and um, the snakes are dead, and I pick up the snake and oh no, well, the snake's not dead. The snake's there, and I pick it up. And the dog leaps for it. Mm. And that wasn't expected. And I say, no, it's my snake, I'm going to eat it. I trained it, I'm going to eat it. <laughs> and that was, that was a line, actually, that was given to me in the, in the pub, in the bar, in other words, in Broken Hill. Because when I wasn't filming, I'd, I'd spend a lot of, I used to spend a fair bit of time with Terry Hayes, the, the screenwriter, sort of mining his, his imagination too, saying, look, if I was in this situation, how do you reckon I'd react? You know, yeah. and what, what if this happened? And I kept, I was saying to him about the dog. You know, I think this dog. You know, it's pretty relationship between me and the dog. You know, Terry, etc. And I think he may have said at some stage about the snakes. It's my snake. I trained it, and and then somehow or other we came across the line because the dog 
wasn't supposed to leap for the snake. So I say, hey, get out of it or whatever. Forgotten the line, and they say, it's my snake. I trained it. I'm going to eat it. Um, and that's where that kind of line came from. So it was a combination of his and my. But mo but otherwise, most of the lines were from his. Um, but I, anyway, going back to the original question, um, I, I came up with the idea. I thought, look, this guy can, is a is a chameleon in order to survive. So he'll he'll do or be anything that that Max wants him to be. But he does have a little bit of a moral spine to him. You know, he doesn't go over to the other side. The, the, you know, the other the bad guys. He sticks with Max. But in a way, he sticks with Max because he he thinks, well, I can survive better with Max. So I I thought, well, I reckon the guy would have been a used car salesman. <laughs> I I think he would have, you know, tried to pull the wool over some people's eyes and, you know, maybe sell a a, a bit of a tin can as a as a real bargain. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, I don't think, you know, so he'll rip people off, but he doesn't necessarily want to want to do terrible damage to them, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So I, I hate to say this because in a way he wasn't, but it was sort of like a lovable rogue. Uh, well, not a lovable, maybe a likable rogue. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but um, I think you can also see parallels with um, the gyrocopter pilot or gyrocaptain or whatever we call him, and, um, and Max. That relationship is very similar to some of the Westerns. Those yeah. old, some of those old black and white westerns you would have seen, even like Hopalong Cassidy had a had a had a sidekick, and they all had, often had these sort of, I wouldn't say comic, but 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 there were humorous aspects to them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, a little comic relief, kind of like a like like Doc Holliday, like that kind of a character. Even like yeah. like Han Solo in Star Wars, kind of a, you know, you, you never know how they're going to react. They just you know react. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, and it's sort of it's like um, someone who's there to to just to bring the hero down to you know the level of the human being a bit more, you know, yeah, make yeah. him make him he's not necessarily superhuman or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or he doesn't regard he doesn't regard the hero as superhuman. He just regards him as an as an opportunity. Yeah, just a, just another uh, another character in the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When uh, Thunderdome came around a few years later. Uh, he comes back again, which is uh, was uh, kind of unexpected the first time I saw it. <laughs> no, it was unexpected for me too. Um, <laughs> he's not. Uh, I think if you ask George, um, he's not necessarily the Jared Captain. Um, it, it, that happened like um, the, the film had already started production, and I hadn't been contacted, and so I just thought, oh well, you know, I haven't got the, I haven't got any work on that, and that's fine. And I wasn't sort of overwhelmed, you know, upset at all. Um, it's George's creation, and he can do what he wants to. And I didn't—I didn't think I had any mortgage on any parts in those films. <laughs> um, but anyway, so it, the film production began, and they started filming. And I, I, I think I may have seen some of the folk who were working on it, and I heard, you know, really good reports about it, etc., etc. And then I got a call from my agent. Got a call, and then I spoke to them too. And apparently, the idea was they had this part. Of this this character who was a you know, a pilot with his son, and they were going to cast it, and they, there was a couple of people they had in mind apparently, and it, whenever they got close to sort of making you know ringing them up and maybe making the request for their availability etc., they kept thinking ah, no maybe you know really 
really Bruce would be good for this role, wouldn't he? They'd say, <laughs> well, yeah, but look, let's see if we can get someone. And apparently, they just kept coming back to me. Basically, I mean, I'm, I'm, ex- <laughs> I'm basically the, the whole the whole premise, the whole idea, what the whole thing was that um, that, that, that they'd gone through and they thought about casting it, and they kept coming back to me, and so they rang up since it, and the conversation was, look, he's not really the the, the gyro pilot. He's a pilot, but he's not the gyro pilot. He's just another character in this film. But we somehow think that you'd be really good for it. And uh, so, okay, I did it. Um, and once again, I went to Norma, and Norma Morrison, the, the um, costume designer, and we worked out this strange costume with, um, I know this is details that probably very few cinema goers that saw the film would have realised, but... I had this um, apron, apron on that was sort of like a Masonic apron. From it had all these Masonic, um, you know, if you were a Mason or etc. I don't know if you're familiar with the Masonic lodge, but um, and we had sort of figured out that he's not because he wasn't the gyro pilot. He had a different kind of get-up, and that sort of helped create the character. Because to be honest, there wasn't a lot of them in the film. Yeah, um, yeah, that was the that was him. See, well, and I grew up, I, when I saw Thunderdome, I was kind of thinking, oh, it's, uh, he, he's gone off and had his own adventure, and he's come back with a kid now, and <laughs> I was just kind of, well, me, I guess, filling in the, the uh, gaps, because I was like, oh, well, it's the same person. <laughs> yeah, well, I think if you presented that sort of, if you made that statement to George Miller, he would say, well, he could be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think he's sort of leaving it open. I don't think he, we didn't make any concerted effort to make him different yeah. apart from his of course uh, after that uh, probably the next movie I've seen uh, you were in was uh, Shrimp on the Barbie with uh, Cheech Marin and Vernon Wells and uh, Michael Gottlieb was directing that's a movie I prefer to forget but, um, oh okay <laughs> I don't know how that came across in, in America but oh, I, I wasn't at all happy with what I did in that film but anyway it was oh. over the top terribly over the top but if it works it works that, that was shot in New Zealand on a very low budget, and um, and I must admit I didn't know what the hell was happening from day to day on that one. Yeah, same time it was great working with Cheech, and you know the people that were in it were wonderful. You know, but I just don't. I think the film wasn't um, placed in a good spot. I don't, anyway, that's another story. Yeah, see, well, plenty of other great movies uh, <laughs> in your your resume here. One of my favorites, I actually just was watching the other day, and it was uh, Ace Ventura: When Nature Calls. When you were one of the the poachers, Gaji. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was, that was shot in South Carolina. Um, yeah, that was another strange one. I just got a call, and uh, in the middle of the night, is this Bruce Spence? I said, yeah, and um, we'd like you to be in this film. And I must admit, this is three o'clock in the morning for me. I don't know when it was made, but th- I think we're talking something like 83, 84, sometime around there. And we don't have the, you know, the things like Skype and all the other stuff um, like we do these days. And also, um, Australians were seen as quite unusual in America, I must admit. Um, I went over there for another film at one stage, and um, they said, can you, know, can, you speak, can you use an American accent? And I said, sure, if you want me to. And some of them, the agents uh, admitted that at that stage, they said uh, Australians, uh, Americans, they said, cannot, um, can't understand, this is, well, this is their claim, they can't understand Australian accents. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but um, I'm not sure if it was the first Mad Max. I think the first Mad Max may have been dubbed 
into American accents. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think originally it had been, but then uh, over the years they kind of went with the original. That's, I think that's the story, and and I know um, that George may have had some uh, disagreements with uh, the distribution of Road Warrior because I think they may have wanted to dub that as well. Yeah. Um, uh, as you probably are aware of it now, the, the Australian accent is quite is a, quite easily understood by Americans and they're quite much more familiar with it but um, but anyway um, so I get this call at 3 o'clock in the morning the director I think was asking me but mind you I think they changed they, did they change directors were there two or three directors on that I'm not quite sure but I know at one stage the first director rang me and said we'd love you to be in this film and I thought well is this for real someone's <laughs> ringing me at 3 o'clock in the morning directly I don't know how he got my number, but anyway, uh, yeah, that was um, Ace Ventura 2, and I went over there and shot that, loved working on it, you know, all, all the folk were, were, were wonderful on that, and, and really enjoyed it. And uh, I guess a few years later, you were in uh, Dark City working with director Alex Proyas, uh, playing Mr. Wall, yeah. and kind of a, a just a weird tale. How, how was it working on that film? I, I really, seriously loved that film. Um, and I, I love working with that particular director. Um, Alex was just wonderful. Um, you know, he may have had a few hit and misses, but I think some of his hits have been really good. And absolutely, um, I love his imagination. I, I think, I think, Dark, personally, I think Dark City is one of his better films. But um, I would uh, agree. <laughs> and, and what was interesting is, um, how can I put it? Um, I think he worked under a number of li- number of limitations at that time. I think the studios were wanting one film and he was wanting another. But um, but the film he ended up with was still a great film. It's funny because um, I seem to be associated with those sorts of those sorts of strange movies. Um, sort of, um, I wouldn't call them sci-fi. They are sci-fi, some of them, but some of them are just sort of extraordinary and, and, and living in an extraordinary world. And um, so. Uh, uh, um, you kind of embrace whatever it is. If it's a crazy world, you kind of easily embrace it. And I, I embraced um, Dark City quite very easily. I loved working in that film. I don't know if it's having a theatrical background allows you to do this. This sort of, I, I really don't know. I, I would describe many Australian actors as having a kind of a consciousness in terms of um, acting and their performance, etc., and added their attitude towards their performance is very similar to British actors, not rather than American actors. Even though a lot of them have a lot of them have been trained in America it's under some of the methods, um, there's a kind of a um, what's the word? We're, so, we're we're sort of easily adaptable, I think, and we're we're, we're less um, more in a way more open. Um, and um, yeah, more easy to break from uh, conformity and like the usual way of yes. doing things. Yeah, yeah. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's I think that's the way we work. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, so working on Dark City, sort of. I think you had to be. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a psychological sci-fi. Like it's it's yeah kind of like noir meeting some weird but well and it's it's very similar to one of your uh, later movies when you were in the matrix revolutions where it's kind of a, yeah. a sci-fi but it's also just kind of dealing with perceptions and all that uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well yeah you're not quite sure what which reality you're in too yeah that's right that's that's very true the world is sort of so quite distorted and um yeah, it's 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 sort of 
how can I describe it? It's almost like Blade Runner too. That um, oh yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of um, it is sort of futuristic, but it in a way it's also kind of like imagine another world, imagine the Earth in another circumstance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's not so much. It, it's not like a two thousand and one. Um, uh, film where, where you've got these. We don't seem to do many of those, although we are doing them now. Those sort of Martian films, those um, and uh, Gravity. I mean, Gravity. Well, yeah. Gravity deals. That's a, that's that's still locked in the real world. It's not. I wouldn't call that futuristic. In a way, it's futuristic, but we seem to be still locked in the real world. Anyway, I, I, I'm getting off the track. But so, so <laughs> and, and um, Dark City is just another world. Yeah, that really is. That's, in a way, Dark City is kind of Philip K. Dick kind of world too. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the director's cut version of it is is fantastic. I highly recommend everyone go see that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a movie I'm quite I'm really proud to be associated with, and I've, I've seen Alex over the years too. And while I'm alive, I certainly hope that I can get to work with him again. Excellent. And then in uh, 2003 was. Uh, kind of a big year for you. You were in The Matrix Revolutions, working with the Wachowski siblings, and then you were also in Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, as the voice of Sauron. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're working with um, the, the Wachowski folk, um, I, I really love them. I re- uh, um, it's funny, because um, when I was asked to be in that, I read, I read the scene, uh, I read the train scene, yeah. and um, at that stage... I hadn't been given the script. I'd seen the first um, Matrix film, but I hadn't been given the script, and I thought, I have no idea where I am, where I'm going to, what the situation is, and, <laughs> and you know, where I've come from. So, and luckily, um, <coughs> almost on the day, um, they gave me a script, and I, I luckily was able to fill it in. However, I must confess, in a way, when you work in the Matrix film, um, especially if, 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 if you're playing a lead, you need to know exactly the whole arc of the plot and the film. But in a, in a way, if you're a character like mine, that one I played, the train man that comes and goes, all you need to know is all you need to know is that is that moment that you're on screen, because that's all you're concerned about. Yeah. Even though you do serve a part of you know often I like to know how the plot goes and I do want to know I do want to read the script because you want to know how the plot goes and how you serve the plot because you know if I want to pitch my character this way it might not serve the plot so you, you know you've got to have to you got to you, even if you're playing a smaller role in the film and, and most of my roles have been sort of support roles etc and, um, and and you know those little 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 ones um, <coughs> um, cameos and stuff you need to know why you're there and, 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 and how you're placed in the terms of the music of the film, which is often what I talk about. The, you know, there's a kind of a musicality of the film and often that scene is there for a specific reason. And once you know that, you kind of know where, you, where to sit it. And that's sort of how where it happened with Train Man. I, you know, I had a fast read of the script and knew where I sat and, and we did it. Um, it was great working with the with the Kowski um, folk. That uh, I, I found them really easy to work with. Um, their direction was fantastic. I loved the way they shot the film. They didn't muck about, which is what way I like to work. But I must admit, you know, when you're when you're in a world like that, that's sort of such a an unusual world. It's it's their it's their world. It's the world that they've created. 
which is you know that that sort of pulling characters from the Greek myth, myths, etc. You know, I don't know where they pulled those characters from, but <laughs> you know, reading, read, reading all the Greek mythology stuff, you can see that there's a lot of that that in it. But then I thought, well, this is probably where I, and I was sort of vaguely aware of that at the time. Um, this is where I sit. But and when you throw out a cat, you throw it says he goes nothing. This is me. Uh, and the very first take, they said, "Yeah, that's great. We like that." And they went, we went on. So um, we, we really, we really got along well. Yeah. See, with the like those kind of roles in the the Matrix movies, especially, it's like they're. Uh, well, I guess in the Matrix, they're like programs. They have one mission, they have the one location, everything else is linked to them, but the characters like you and the other actors did the did them so well that it was like, okay, I get it, I'm with it. <laughs> Even though it's only yeah, one scene yeah. or two scenes. Yeah. That's right. But but you, you know that you're linking a whole sort of narrative. And I got it, and, and I think we all agree that that, that that narrative was quite difficult at times. Yeah. Especially with the Matrix two and three, you know, the second and the third one, I think were, you know, in some ways a bit problematic. But um, they were. I think if you sit back and watch them now, they still sit okay. I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and then with the Lord of the Rings: Return of the King, was that shot down in uh, New Zealand? Is that correct? That was in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. That was. Uh, that was, wasn't a lot. Of, it, wasn't, it was only a day or so, but a lot of time doing um, prosthetics, etc. Um, yeah, how was it wearing the uh, yeah the the helmet and the mouthpiece and all that? Well, <laughs> my, my my day happened like this. Um, I'd learned my script. Uh, I kind of knew what I was doing. I arrived on set. It was very cold where we were shooting, um, but at least I, I, I arrived to the location. And that night, no, that night about eleven o'clock, I got another script. Uh, that was changed. So I started before I went to bed. I st- tried to learn that one, and I got up that morning and learned that this is the second version, and I'm learning that. I get 4:30 uh, uh, in the morning. I'm on set because there's a lot of prosthetic stuff. I'm sitting in the, the um, makeup chair th- about three hours later, about to go to set when when a, an assistant director comes in and says, "By the way, here are the rewrites." And here's another rewrite. So I've had three rewrites, and I've got my brain's got to sort of take in how to, because basically what you've got is this kind of the same language, the same dialogue, but it's been moved around and and it's been added to and various other things. So my brain was smashed, and I thought they gave me the rewrites, those last the last lot of rewrites as I was as I was walking to the horse to get on it to go to location. I said to the guy, "How am I supposed to learn this between?" Here and you know, like the the set, which is you know about fifty yards away, <laughs> on the horse. I said I haven't got time to learn this. And he said, well, you know. So while I'm waiting for this setting up the shot, etc., I'm trying to sort of pick up this dialogue, and at the same time, they want they keep wanting to put the helmet on me because of the camera wants to see what it looks like, etc., and so does the director. And when that helmet goes on, I can't see. So I'm, I was pretty well blind, and it reached the stage where basically what was happening was um, we rehearsed it. So uh, I was you know, looking straight ahead, and I moved my head, and I said, "Right, how's that for Gandalf?" And that's a little bit further left, a little bit further right. Use there that for Gandalf, and and so I worked out in my head, kind of where my head had to be, in order to 
I worked out in my mind kind of where my head had to be for each character when I was addressing them. At the same time, I hadn't. I was still had these three versions of in my head. We got through yeah. it. We shot it. It went went quite well. But um, by gee, it was a difficult day. I do I, I do believe that apparently from what I'd heard later on that that a lot of there had been a lot of rewrites being you know last minute rewrites on set and it it was a bit of a a bit of a challenge for people. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, I got through it. It was good. And and the result was really, um, I was really quite chuffed at the result. It was really good. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's funny how you see a character like that. You read them, you read it, you know, you've, I've read the book, so I'm very familiar with it. Kind of thought it was really interesting. But it wasn't until I, it, I saw it on screen that I realized how significant the character was in the storyline, and etc. Because he's sort of the, you know, when you reach Sauron, he's kind of the, in a way, the, the face of Sauron, in a way, because he's the only character that comes from within those walls, apart from the, the rather ugly folk. So, I know here in the States, it actually wasn't in the theatrical cut. It, you had to get the extended version when it came out on DVD. I was just going to ask if... if if uh, I guess you hadn't seen it on uh, on the big screen, but it sounds like you have. I did get to see it a bit. No, I, I, well, I sort of mentioned. Look, I'm off, I'm sort of philosophic about all that stuff. Yeah, I, I didn't. I knew it wasn't. Um, they actually rang me up while uh, I think they were before it was released. But I think they may have rang me up during the cut during the cutting and said, "Look, I'm sorry, we're cutting you out of the, the main you know feature, but you'll be in you'll be in the extended version." And I, at the time, and, and I don't know if you remember, but the DVDs were kind of important, becoming important then, but they're not nearly as important as they are now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, okay, I'm in the DVD. That's a bit, and I was a bit disappointed, but um, but um, as I said, I'm quite philosophic when I do those things. I, I did see it, and I, and, I, and I was quite impressed, and I was even more impressed when because they invited me to go to Germany for... Uh, Ringcon, which is you know, one of the conventions over there, and I was amazed at the significance that they had placed on not only the Lord of the Rings, which I realise now, after being there, um, that how Norse legends are so important to the Germans, yeah. but uh, and how how significant that particular role that I played within that whole trilogy was. Yeah, absolutely, excellent. Well, and then also in two thousand three, uh, you were a voice in Finding Nemo, and you're also in a Peter Pan remake. That's four huge movies in one year. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I look, I was just lucky. I think I just I still think it's a lot of it serendipity. Um, uh, I love doing Finding Nemo um, and working with those people. That was the first time I'd sort of worked with. And in those days, it was still rudimentary in terms of having, you know, we, we had a video link up between Australia and, and um, I don't remember, I think they were in Frisco at that time, Pixar. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, between us and them, and, and it was just wonderful working with them. Um, I know it wasn't a huge contribution I made, but I just, I loved working <laughs> with them. They were so, those, those guys were just wonderful, so generous so respectful and and also you know just really wonderfully warm wonderful warm people to work with as they as they one of them said i won't not won't claim i'm not going to name the person but one of them said we're not la here bruce <laughs> <laughs> very nice 
Well, uh, and of course, you also starred in episode three of uh, Star Wars: Revenge of the Sith. Uh, you were uh, Tion Madan. Uh, what was that like working with all the the makeup and the mouthpiece for that as well? Does that stuff? Do you enjoy it, or uh, you say you're serendipitous? But is it something you enjoy? I love it. Yeah, I love it all. Well, especially something like um, a Revenge of the Sith. Now, uh, I could be wrong on this, but I'm being told by a number of enthusiasts from Star Wars enthusiasts that that Tion Medon was the uh, in in that particular film it was the only new character that they that was introduced they um yeah there may have been some some little smaller characters you know that without speaking roles but i think i was the only new character that they had yeah that Um, makes sense yeah and that was another uh, you know working with george was just amazingly easy um see most of these films apart from ace ventura um have been shot in Australia and I I have a family here my wife and I have you know, two kids they're growing up now and they have kids of their own but at that time they were quite young and um, I must and also as I said I did quite a, I still do quite a bit of theatre here and I'm quite happy being here rather than being in LA I find um, I've, uh, I guess it's my own sort of you know spirit home and um, in a, um, feel I've and I need my family, so um, that's yeah. the reason why I, I don't travel a lot. So I'm very fortunate that when these films do come to Australia, and, and such as Star Wars and those other films like Matrix, etc., um, I tend to get cast in them. And I'm really fortunate that I get these kind of roles, which I really enjoy. Yeah, yeah. As I said, working with George was a was a dream. I mean, we shot it very easily. There was a heck of a lot of um, prosthetic on that one. Yeah. You know. It, very very early in the morning that we started and uh and even up until that time we did a couple of um how can you put it so um we came up and we experimented with the makeup we um first of all with the with the guys doing the doing the faces etc all the prosthetic and george would come and go um looking at looking at what was there and how to you know create the lines etc how to paint it but all those sorts of details, I was there. One of the things I really have noticed, because I've been in the business a while now and used prosthetics, you know, as I said, since, uh, you know, what is it, since the 70s. 70s, yeah. Is that, is that prosthetics have improved enormously, and even with that Star Wars, but I'll bet they're even better than in those days. I did some recently. I'm just trying to think of the prosthetic. I oh, yeah, was up north. But, um, but anyway... They're, they're much more giving these days. In the old days, it was latex, and your your face would hardly move. I don't know if you've seen some of those Doctor Who, yeah. um, see the British series, and some of the old ones. You can kind of see the the prosthetic is coming away from the face, and they look really they don't look good at all. But yeah, and like the old Star Treks and stuff like that. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. But as we've gone on, you know, the stuff as I said that last that Revenge of the Sith and and. And, and even more recently, um, you can see you can create expressions with them. You can, they're, they're so so forgiving. They're wonderful. So I found it really enjoyable, and I loved it. I loved creating that role. Yeah. And, of course, you mentioned uh, how much you love Australia. Did you enjoy making the movie Australia with Boz Lerman and Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman? Kind of a love letter for the country, right? Uh, it was, yeah. Um, I've, I've, I've known 
uh, Nicole for quite a while. We sort of worked around. Uh, she did some work with George Miller in those very early days, some of the series, etc., uh, for for his studio. So I've worked with her, and I've known Hugh a bit. Um, so it, it was good. It was sort of like old home week for for a lot of us there, um, nice. and it, it was good. Yeah, no, I enjoyed working on it. The, the film could have film may have had a little bit too much in it, but it was. <laughs> It was a it was a good movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a good movie. Yeah, a little little long in the tooth, as might say, but but yeah, definitely worth a watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think a number of those films. I think was the same with Thunderdome in a way that um, I think sometimes, and that's the great thing about Fury Road that um, I'm jumping around here, but um, oh, yeah. the great thing about Road, and I and I think Road Warrior is um, the plot line. The, the, the plot line is quite. Um, Quite clean. There's, there's, there are no, there are very few diversions in it, and there. Are, well, put it this way: there are only, and there are just enough diversions in it, in, in those plot lines. Yeah. Um, whereas with um, Thunderdome and maybe Australia, there are so many diff- there are so many things packed into it. It uh, the the central lines of the central the lines of the journeys of the central characters are often. And and the uh, initial concept of the movie often tends to be compromised. Yeah, a lot of subplots and uh, B stories kind of crossing in and almost kind of that's distracting. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and sometimes you wonder what you know you you get lost. And then you were also in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, series uh, on the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. How, how was yeah. I working on that one? I really enjoyed working with the director on that. It was fantastic. Um, he shoots very fast. I'm, I've got the name of the director, but um, yeah. um, he shoots very, very fast, and I kind of like that often. I think once you know what what, what the rules of the of the on, on set are, in the sense sense that you know some directors will shoot twenty takes, and once you you know if you if you know that you're going to be shooting twenty takes, you kind of know where to place your performance. You know whether or not to place your best performance. Well, in, sometimes you never know if it's going to be your best performance. But <laughs> you, 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 if you're going to be doing 20 takes, you know in the first couple of takes you can just be experimenting or just testing things, uh, and then you can never normally around it. Oh, I'm going to put money on the. If there are any film directors, and there are many film directors in America and in the US that will shoot up to 20 takes sometimes, but I'll bet they'll end up by going. With take three or take four or take five, <laughs> yeah, you know, they're off, off, they're more often than not going for something that's just not there. They're not going to find. And um, but if you know you're working with a director who says, "Look, this director shoots fast. He doesn't like to shoot any more than five takes." You know, you've got to be there on the first take. And and uh, I quite like that. It really focuses you. And uh, working on the Dawn Treader was for for me personally. That's the way he worked with me, and I kind of like that. So, and then you were uh, reunited with director Alex Proyas for uh, Gods of Egypt. Uh, so, you mentioned director. Is there a particular kind of director that you like to work with, or like a like a favorite? Um, well, as I said, working with George and working with Alex were two great occasions. So, I like yeah. uh, uh, working on the Matrix. The Wachowski folk were just wonderful to work with. Uh, I um, there were very few. I've worked with very few bad directors, but I do like working with a, a, a director that understands performance and that not only has faith in you, but uh, you probably wouldn't be cast if they didn't have faith in you, but uh, but 
uh, that also um, has the courage to sort of to um, uh, what's the word to not to pull you up to but to um, just to, to, to guide you to guide you and, and sometimes just to uh, give you the confidence that, that you're that, that what you're doing is, is right and maybe also to encourage you to do more but you know when you're working with a director often those things that I've just described about you know to go to maybe to make your performance a bit bigger or to make it smaller or whatever are just a minute tweak you know I'm not talking about making it huge or um, th these are variations that are often very very uh, um, subtle yeah. uh, and um but working with a director that understands performance is the best director, of course. So, and, and those directors that I mentioned are, are generally the um, directors that are very familiar with performance. Yeah. yeah. More often than not, um, if it's a fast shoot, and I'm often, especially in Australia, you're. And I think that's why they, some people like working with Australian actors too, but because we we, we do so many low budget films. Um, or films compared to American films, uh, US films, they're low budget. That um, you're not doing an enormous number of takes, and so you've got to sort of like, you know, as we say, pull your finger out and, and really be there on the spot. And also, if it's not right, then someone's then Australian. If you're working with an Australian director, they'll be quite direct with you about you know what's not right. Yeah. Um, whereas often, you know, if you're working with some of those American directors, they're they're a bit timid about coming and approaching you and suggesting you do something different but um, I'm being fortunate that most of those directors I have worked with haven't needed to do that and they've been quite more than satisfied with what I've done. Yeah and then uh, even last year you were in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man Town No Tales. Was that uh, Gore Verbinski still directing those movies? No they were the two brothers. Oh god I've got to look up that. Yeah say sorry um, I was going off memory and I'm like wait... <laughs> They're, they're Norwegian guys. Um, they did the Contiki. Um, oh, yeah. I haven't, yeah. Got, I haven't got their names in front of me, but uh, there were two brothers. No, they're not brothers, they're, but there were two directors. One tended to focus on, on the camera, but he as well, he did some performance. <clears throat> and the other um, focused on on, um, on the actor. Uh, and I really, I really love working with them. When you're working on a set like that, and the scene that I had, even though a lot of it has to do with the the lead actor, you know, with Johnny, uh, that um, you don't often you only see a little of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, because and that's the way filming is, especially when you're doing crowd scenes. You can't be there for everything. Yeah. Um, so, but I loved working with. Them. I, I love. I mean, see, it's a period film. Uh, for me, it's no different to working on Matrix. Yeah. It's just a different time period. <laughs> that's, that's right, that's right. And then you're also in another uh, period piece, Winchester, which I've yet to see, just uh, waiting for it to come through on Netflix, actually. Uh, but yeah. what was it like working on that? Was that shot down in Australia, or was that like here in San Jose? That was shot, with, uh, once again, two, two brothers, they're, um, they're twin brothers. Um, uh, I really enjoyed working on that. They're often sort of, how can I put it, they're often... I know they had a, they were labouring under a number of um, difficulties on that. Um, they had a budget. They had a very low budget, and, and I, I know they wanted to make it look really spectacular. And so you've got to make every penny count. Um, yeah. 
in terms of performance working with them I just uh, just superb I'd work with them any day um, I think the film is, has a great storyline to it I know um, I think it may have gone to television or something I'm not quite sure and I think the reviews have been mixed I believe uh, yeah yeah but, a little um, mixed but it's interesting these guys are young and I reckon we're going to hear a lot more from them uh, that's the interesting thing about it I think they're worth following yeah, the uh, Spe- Spirig brothers, correct? Sorry. The uh, Spirig brothers. That's right. Okay. And and, and they're, um, as I said, they're working on low budget films, and and I think that that, that often penalises them. But um, I think when you're dealing with films that are sort of extraordinary, that are you know kind of, it's a sort of a horror film of you know it's almost a semi fantasy film. I wouldn't call it a fantasy film, but it's kind of semi fantasy um, yeah. horror film. When you're dealing with stuff like that, you really, you really need a lot of time and money to make them look, make it look fantastic. You know, there's a lot of special effects are required, a lot of digital stuff, a lot of makeup stuff is required. And at that time, they had a very, very fast shoot. Helen Mirren was only available for a very limited amount of time. Yeah. So within that, with, I think within the limitations that they had, I reckon they've done a great job. They also believe that the I don't want to say too much, but I believe the estate um, of the Winchester estate sort of had various stipulations about what they couldn't say and do in the plot. Oh, yeah. I could see that. Yeah, so that may have um, handicapped them a bit. So, But but, uh, I I, I still think, as you said, that their their director's worth following. I think they've got a great future. And then uh, I guess production's also completed on a movie called Occupation. Uh, Mind telling us a little bit about that? I haven't heard much about it. That's uh, that's another another sort of sci-fi fantasy film. Um, sort of involves a, an invasion from outer space by um, aliens, and I play the role of the, the sort of head alien, the you know the leader. Oh. Um, once again, there's a lot of prosthetic there, uh, but once again, it's a low-budget film that's sort of shot with very little money, but um, but it's gone a long way, I think. And I'm quite optimistic about that film, yeah. But um, as I said, it deals with um, invasion of aliens from outer space on Earth and, and the conflict that um, ensues. Excellent. And does your uh, character being the, the head alien, does it have like a, a, a real like character arc or is it more of just like an imposing, imposing um, villain, I yeah, guess? Yeah, well, it's interesting because um, well, the way I saw it, um, most, you know, uh, no, not most, but... Uh, there, there are a, a lot of films that will always portray, you know, especially the old, old black and white movies and the older films. They often portray aliens as being, you know, frightened characters that will take over the world and do evil things to you, and um, and so they're, you know, they're people to, you know, they're they're they're, they're the folk of nightmares. Um, and in a way, these characters, these aliens are, but. The writer has given them reasons for why they need to come to this earth and why they need to come onto this planet and and um, and possess it yeah. for their own survival too. But um, and there are various other reasons, and they have their own moral code too. But but during the course of that movie, that moral code is influenced in some way and gradually changes, but not 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 too dramatically. But it, it does it is it does become a little bit more. How can I put it? Um, I, say it sa- I say it sounds very similar to like Mad Max, where it's it's all about survival and uh, 
conflict with your own moral code just to survive. I think a lot of those films are. I think that um, it's a it's a sort of a situation that that, that that preoccupies human beings a lot. It's interesting just going back on that. Um, some of the, those directors that I've worked with, I'll bet um, probably eighty percent and possibly more of them have read uh, Joseph Campbell. Well, Joseph. Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Oh, um, yes, okay. And he, I don't know if it was, I thought it was UCLA. He was a professor at UCLA. I think he's passed away now. But um, and, I, and George Lucas also financed a whole series of interviews with um, Joseph Campbell. Uh, and Campbell um, was, a, was a professor at the time, but it wasn't sort of mythology it was something else it was um, not archaeology but basically he he studied all the, all the world's mythologies <clears throat> whether or not it's a Greek mythology uh, Indonesian or Indian mythology or wherever uh, native Indian mythologies Norse legends the whole lot uh, he, after going through all those he noted that he noticed that there were similarities and he came to the conclusion that that human beings need need sort of certain moral stories to guide them, and through these stories we find there are, there are sort of uh, a lot of symbolic similarities and various journeys that are, that are that are kind of very similar, uh, and and you can see that with with the role of Ma- of Max, you can see it with um, the central characters in Star Wars too that yeah. that um, Lucas borrowed a lot from Joseph Campbell. Oh, well, to put it this way, he was influenced heavily by Joseph Campbell. Um, I know Spielberg also read him. Alex Proyas would, would know him backwards, and George Miller yeah. often talked about Joseph Campbell. Um, and in fact, um, he talks. George Miller often talks about the quest. Just about every mythology has has people on a quest, and even Lorenzo Zoil. Was even though it's a domestic story about you know two parents trying to find something that will save, save their son. son's life. Yeah. It's the same. He said he sees that as the same kind of quest that, similar to the kind of quest that say Max would have gone on. And and if you uh, if you anybody familiar with Joseph Campbell would sort of see the similarities of that. Campbell also talked about other things like the the trilogy that you know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And, uh, and on the third day, he rose again. And, and, and in other mythologies, too, the trilogy is there, too. Uh, I won't go into the details, but um, if, you, if you go through Greek mythology and, and uh, ancient Roman mythology, etc., it's there. But um, he's a person worth reading. But The Hero with a yeah, Thousand absolutely. Faces... For, for, the Hero with a Thousand Faces is a, is a sort of a Bible for, for many young filmmakers. Uh, and I think... That's where we see a lot of these sorts of stories being told, and I think it's a sort of a Joseph, um, Joseph Campbell's work is a kind of a springboard for that that sort of stuff. Gonna have to read that now. I've heard of it now that you mentioned the name of the book. I was like, oh yeah, I've heard of it, but Joseph Campbell yeah. here with thousand faces. Excellent. Um, I must admit, yeah, I must admit, a lot of his stuff is academic, so you'd probably fall asleep reading it. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, I think that um, Hero with a Thousand Faces is is a sort of a a really good um, entry to that. 
Excellent. As long as there's a few charts and pretty pictures, I'm I'll, I'll give it a try. <laughs> Excellent. And then uh, I also saw you're doing a voice work for the Edge of Twilight video game. Is that correct? Yeah, just um, did those a little while ago. Just recently. Yeah, yeah, they're coming along. And look, I'm I'm just a a body for sale. Um, uh, I'm, I'm 72 now, and um, in fact, we're this Sunday we're about to fly out to uh, Sweden, where my son lives, and spend some time with him and his family. But um, yeah, cool. uh, my wife and I, and um, uh, our life is pretty full here. I've been, as I said, I did a little bit of film last year, um, but most of my work last year was in theatre, um, with, working with the Sydney Theatre Company. Oh. And um, it looks like I'll have some work. With, I'll be working with them again next year. Too. So um, th- that's what keeps me going right now. Um, but who knows? The film industry is in the a little bit in the doldrums here in Australia. Our funding, our government, we have a very conservative government in power at present, and um, they are, are they tend to be reluctant to um, provide um, financial benefits for the film industry. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but I- any film industry outside America. Even I think the British film industry, because of the um, overwhelming influence of the American film industry, and you can sort of virtually get your profit at home, and then and then the rest of the world is cream on your on, the, on when you're when you're producing your films. Yeah. Um, but, but we we it's, we have a, uh, our audiences are quite small, and therefore we need assistance, and and it forces our budgets down, which is okay. We're quite prepared to live with that. But also we need we need sort of a bit of assistance to to make sure we get a, an easy return on our film on our on our investment in the film right now and um, and it's been okay up until recently but this government has sort of put the screws on us for a while and that's why I don't know if you you probably wouldn't notice but um, over there but uh, there's very for a start there's very, there's almost no foreign films being made here right now. Oh. And they haven't been made for quite a while. Um, there are a few possibly planned. They're talking about them. I know um, what's his name, Cameron, is making um, some movies in New Zealand. But otherwise, oh, the Avatar movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think he's making two, or isn't he, or three? Uh, sure. I think he's got plans for like five, but he's probably doing two right now just to yeah. start yeah. off. <laughs> James Cameron. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. <clears throat> But, but see, I'm as I said, I'm 72, and I'm I'm doing theatre. I I don't I'm not overly I don't lose any sleep over that. There's no film yeah. work. Well, then I'm, I'm fine. Uh, there is a certain degree of optimism. There's been a lot of the um, produ- screen producers, uh, writers, and actors, etc., and and uh, crew representatives have been talking to the government, and it looks like in the next couple of months we might have some new legislation that will possibly encourage uh, uh, films to come uh, foreign foreign productions to come to Australia so okay. we'll see what happens excellent so in a dream scenario are you looking for more to be into movies or theater or like voiceover work do you have a preference one over the other um, not really no um, well I do have a preference yeah um, I suppose I could say that like, film, film's great I love working in film also it pays better but, um, <laughs> but, but um, I do love working in film, but I love working on theatre. Theatre, how can I put it? When you're 72 years of age, theatre's a real test. 
because yeah. you're getting older and your brain gets a little rustier. But um, luckily, I've been okay. And um, so the, the challenge of theatre really keeps you sharp uh, and really keeps the brain sharp. Whereas, you know, if you're doing film and you're doing a scene, you can always shoot it again if you find difficulty. But on stage, there's no room for mistakes. Yeah, it'd be and hyper-focused. In way, yeah, and in a way, I, I still like that the danger of, of stage. Well, and of course, our uh, podcast is everything I learned from movies. So uh, in summation, you've already shared some great nuggets, but are there anything else you'd like to share with people that you've learned being in movies and in the industry that you'd like to pass along? Oh, not really. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, for people being... See, I, I've always had a very laid-back attitude to move to uh, my career. Um, I'm six foot six. I'm very thin. I'm quite unusual physically, and I've always assumed that um, I would, would I would be having great difficulty um, in being a, an actor, surviving in the film in, 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 a, in the film industry, and, and on stage in this country, Australia, because it's such a small country. So I'm I'm in a way, quite surprised that here I am at 72. I had, I had those feelings and that attitude when I first started out in 1972. And here I am here in you know, 2018, still working. And I, that, that, for me, is a miracle, and I'm really glad for it. I, th- I think it's really... The film industry is really competitive, and I know it's competitive in, in America. But... Um, my, my my main advice to any young actor is don't treat it as the only thing. Don't. It's not life and death. <laughs> Theatre is not life and death. As we say often on set, look, you know, this ain't heart surgery that we're doing here. <laughs> we're just making movies. We're, we're telling stories. And I think if you have a much more relaxed attitude and approach to it, I think, in a way, somehow or other, you become more creative. As as a fellow gentleman who's also six foot eight, very skinny though not as skinny as I used to be, uh, it, it's truly an inspiration to see you're still doing. I mean, for five decades now, just starring in movies and keep, keeping a good attitude about everything. That's really inspiring. Oh, thank you. You're six foot eight. I'm six foot eight. Yeah. <laughs> How old are you? Uh, thirty-seven, as of last Thursday. <laughs> and are you happy with things in your world? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm in the. Uh, I'm not in the film industry. I'm in uh, hospitality, as it were, with uh, luxury hotels. But, <laughs> but yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just, oh, good on you. Good on you. Yeah, excellent. 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 Well, thank you once again for joining me. Uh, it's truly been an honor. Keep us posted, like with uh, new stuff that's coming out. I mean. I, I know they're like the Avatar movies are coming out, but it seems like just about every movie made in Australia the last couple of years you've been in. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I've been very lucky, very fortunate. Look, I'm, I'm, I hope that was interesting. It might sound a bit boring. I hope I wasn't too boring. For oh you. no, 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 not at all. Like I said, I'll I'll let it out. I'll let it make it really nice. But I mean, all the stories were just incredible. Thank you for sharing all of them. <laughs> okay, you're most welcome. All right, thank you. Have a good day, sir. Well, I guess uh, have a yeah, good day. It's morning there still, right? <laughs> exactly, and you have a good evening. All the best to you and your wife, too. All right, thank you. Have a good day, Mr. Spence. Righto, bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Yeah, so that was Bruce Spence. Um, really the uh, only actor I can think of that was, has been in a Star Wars movie, and Lord of the Rings, and The Matrix, and <laughs> every franchise, it seems. Yeah, just a great guy. Glad he was able to take time out of his day to talk to me, and uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, some other great interviews coming up. If you liked it, tell your friends about us. Uh, we're at eilfm.podbean.com that's everything I learned from movies.podbean.com uh, hit us up on Twitter uh, we're also on like Spotify and like all kinds of podcatchers and stuff so whatever one's easiest for you find us, download us, enjoy us uh, coming up in May we have some great podcasts we're doing uh, for Cast of May uh, they're suggestions that uh, some of our fellow podcasters with the castaways uh, suggested for us uh, some of them better than others but uh, <laughs> all, all are going to be a lot of fun again we also have other interviews coming up oh May 18th through 20th uh, join us follow at live stream for the cure because there's going to be a three day podcasting basically marathon going on uh raising money for a good cause trying to raise up to five thousand dollars for cancer research um i'll be on there on the 19th uh for a couple hour block come hang out with us have some great good fun great prizes uh it's through uh, epic film guys or the the great podcast that's putting that on so yeah definitely give them a listen and uh of course just thank you for listening in general uh this is a lot of fun uh, I'm talking to people I never thought I'd be able to <laughs> and uh, hearing some of their great and inspiring stories. I want to bring you more and uh, got some big ones on the way. I kind of don't want to tell you, but I kind of want to do. Uh, just, just stay posted. Um, so until next time, I'm Steve and this is everything I learned from movies. And now some great promotions for some other podcasts that we definitely think you should listen to. Hey, do you like movies? Hey, do you like podcasts? If you do, then come on down and listen to the Home Video Hustle podcast, homie. Hustle, hustle. Every Friday, we talk about whatever movie PJ picks out the bag. What does that mean? Well, every Wednesday on our YouTube page, I pick a bunch of movies at random. Sometimes there's a theme to it, sometimes not. PJ picks the movie out, and guess what? We watch it on Friday. We talk about it for about maybe an hour, hour and a half, whatever we feel like doing. Might give you something good to watch, baby. Come on down every Friday. So come get your hustle on with Home Video Hustle. You can find the show on any podcatcher app, or you can come down to homevideohustle.poppin.com. All of them in one place for you, so you can go ahead and binge it like it's Netflix. We ain't the defenders, uh. but I like to think we a little bit better than that. <laughs> Come out at your boys, man. Come chill with us. Peace. Peace. Have you ever watched an absolutely terrible movie and thought to yourself, what were they thinking? Because we sure have. So much so that we named our podcast after it. What were they thinking? Starring me, Nathan. And Brendan. Every other week, we take a bad to questionable movie and unpack it. So you don't have to. And then every other other week, we ate your cues with our mailbag. Or, you know, talk about whatever. Yeah, no big whoop. No, no big whoop at all. So that's what were they thinking. You can catch us on Podbean, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and more. Uh, also, a ton of platforms that Brendan made up. We're happy to have you with us this evening and want you to enjoy every minute of your stay here. Listen to me. Please listen. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you!
Are you ready to enter the sci-fi double feature drive-in? Every month we hold a special double feature with a very interesting theme thought up by your host, the conspiracy-loving Elisa, and yours truly, Jarrett the Kaiju Man Wegelin. We discuss giant monsters, little monsters, genetic abominations, robots gone awry, aliens coming to Earth, cryptids, and anything in between. So join us at the sci-fi double feature drive-in podcast every first and third Thursday of the month. And don't forget to stop by our snack bar first. Hi guys, we interrupt your favorite podcast to interrupt you with an ad for your new favorite podcast. Wait, wait, isn't this playing on somebody else's show? Exactly. So then how are we, I thought we were their new favorite podcast. Well, we're going to become their new favorite podcast after they hear this advertisement for our show. What's our show called, Justine? Superiority Complex. Yeah, where can they find us? Patrick. Uh, Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, exactly. You can go to at Soup Complex on Twitter, S-O-U-P Complex, and you can go to Facebook.com slash Soup Complex. But our main page is on Podbean, and you can find us there at www.superioritycomplex.podbean.com. New episodes are out every Thursday. Justine, what do we talk about on the Superiority Complex? Nerdy stuff. Perfect. Don't get all sensual with your voice. Yeah, did you hear that? I heard it. If you want to hear a little more of that, tune in to the Superiority Complex. One more time, Justine, what do we talk about? Nerdy stuff. Nah, wasn't the same. You tried. Hey, this is Liz. And this is Heather. And we are Nerdy Bitches Podcast. A show where two geeky ladies podcast their way through pop culture. From movies and TV to our regular book club and everything in between, we bring you our favorite fandoms with a feminine eye. We're talking Star Wars, Star Trek, Harry Potter, DC Marvel, comic books, and anime. And don't forget sci-fi, fantasy, action movies, video games, D&D, board games, and so much more. Be sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbeam, or wherever you find awesome podcast you can also find us hanging out on twitter facebook instagram pinterest and at nerdybitches.com talk to you soon hi i'm ellen and i'm scared we exist in the matrix i'm jaslyn and i'm bad at ad living <laughs> and you're listening to high, high expectations, expectations the promo for our international listeners you can appreciate our cute new zealand accents for our local listeners you might bump into us in the street three times in the same hour. Our podcast is about pop culture, sexuality, relationships, interesting hobbies, banter, and ragging on each other. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or anywhere you might like to find podcasts. Yay! Please subscribe. Goodbye! Goodbye!